Hello, this is Dr. Mansur Mohammed, and today we'll be mapping the self-isolation ripple effect on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Mansoor Mohammed. Dr. Mansoor and I have a rich lineup of podcasts in the queue for you, discussing key topics that I know will be of great interest to you. But right now, there's really only one thing on our minds. So I invited Dr. Mansoor back to the mic, and we're bumping this conversation to the top of the release list. This episode is part of our COVID-19 special edition. As I noted in the last special edition release, I recently heard one of my full body systems students refer to the COVID-15 as the weight that people are gaining as they are sheltering in place. I'm hoping that for you, we can replace that 15 with these 15 minutes, 15 minutes or so as the case may be today, minutes that fuel your personal and professional health, well-being, and even messaging to your own communities. Dr. Mansoor is the president and CSO of The DNA Company, a leading and innovative provider of comprehensive functional genomic testing and consulting. Under Dr. Mansoor's leadership, The DNA Company has pioneered the term fluency in the language of DNA and is revolutionizing the use of genomic testing toward optimized health. You'll want to be sure to pay close attention to today's episode and check back for the additional lineup I have in store for you, where I have the privilege of sharing more of Dr. Mansoor's wisdom regarding genomics. For now, let's dive into the subject at hand. Welcome, Dr. Mansoor. Thank you for joining me here during these unique and challenging times. It's a pleasure, Andrea. So glad to have you here and grateful again. Like I said, I know we're going to talk about the downstream impacts of social distancing or even more of the self-isolation or lockdown approach. But before we do, can we ground on your perspective regarding this approach to shutting down the virus? I think, Andrea, it's a very important question. I will make the disclaimer right off that there are pros and cons to the various approaches uh, involved in self-isolation and the quarantining approach. There are not just considerations for from the health or infectious angle. There are broader societal considerations. So with that in mind, you know, we're all still learning when it comes to this pandemic. No one quite understands fully. I don't think any scientists or group of scientists or any policymakers can say we fully understand. We're still in predictive modeling. We're still in epidemiological data studies. So with that in mind, I would summarize as such. Do we need to be self-isolating a certain segment of the population? Absolutely. We need to be aware that there is a segment of this population, our populations, our communities, that this SARS-CoV-2 infection is going to be deadly. 
And we have to do everything possible to protect them. These are going to be individuals that are, for example, immune compromised, individuals with organ transplants, our cancer patients that are mm -hmm. actively on chemotherapies. Notice I haven't yet started with the age because mm -hmm. when this first started, we, many of us, myself included, we were looking at the data and it was strongly indicative of uh, something that would be more concerning for the elder population. And that still stays to be true. However, as the numbers increase, so we're seeing broader and broader population manifestation of this infection, we are seeing that this can be in a small percent of the population, but it can be a serious infection in much younger individuals. Is there a common denominator? And so let's use this and let's come back to answer your question. A common denominator does seem to exist, which is, we've mentioned some of the comorbidities of immune compromisation, organ transplants, cancer patients. Clearly, the two biggest comorbidities with this infection are hypertension and other cardiovascular manifestations, as well well as type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. And those two things do not bias or differentiate when it comes to age. So with those in mind, let's answer the question. Should we be self-isolating those high-risk individuals? Yes, because this is going to be a significant health challenge for them. Now hold on here. It's not just from the individual perspective of the health concern for those individuals. If we take the segment of the population, Andrea, that fall into that bucket of at-risk, all of the individuals we've mentioned, just those individuals, including the individuals with chronic hypertension, chronic insulinemia, i.e. type 2 diabetes, if we just take that segment of the population, were they to become infected and were they therefore, assumingly, to transition into more severe manifestations, needing ventilator support, needing hospital care, we would crash our hospital system. Right. And this is such an important thing for our audience to understand. Notice what I've just done there. I've separated the overall population. I've taken just a population that we can all agree, the most conservative amongst us can agree, that this population that I've just identified is at risk of a mortal or is in mortal danger if they get this infection. If we just took those people and if they were to get ill, we could crash our healthcare system. So we do have to watch out for those individuals. So what you're talking about is what I've been thinking about as sort of there's a self-responsibility, there's a social responsibility, and there's an institutional responsibility and liability. And we each have to be conscious at this point in time of all of those things. Is that uh, correct? 100%. Uh, and remember here, think about this, Andrea, the very healthcare system that will need to respond to this pandemic, even if it is only for the at-risk population, the same healthcare system has to continuously respond to trauma events of Correct. car accidents, yep. pregnant young women for childbirth, existing care for cancer patients. Yep. So as a society, we have to understand this is not about this virus being overly deadly or not. We can all agree that, well, it's certainly more concerning than the common flu, but it's certainly less concerning from a pure morbidity, mortality perspective than other viruses. That's not the issue at play here. The issue at play is what this can do when it brings our acute care healthcare system to a grounding halt. 
this is the issue. Right. And I think there's so many factors that are at play here that are unknown, which is why we have to take this collective, these collective measures of care. Um, and I think there's a lot of anxiety that this is almost like a pandemic in terms of its spread. And we're finding that's not the case. But at the same time, we don't have the antidote at this point. We don't have ways of addressing it. And that's that in itself is impacting some of what we're talking about today, which is the ripple effect. So we're going to talk about some of that anxiety and the ripple effect from there. But what else have you been seeing in terms of how people are behaving in this uh, this self-isolation or, or social mm -hmm. distancing state? Mm -hmm. I think the single most important point when we get into that just overall concept that I'd like to reinforce to our audience and that I see and I come across when I speak to individuals is the misconception that without symptomology, it means that I can't spread the virus. Mm -hmm. And this is something that has to be addressed. It means that, yes, by God's grace, the vast majority of individuals that do contract the virus and that do actively become infected are not going to be in mortal danger. However, they may not be in mortal danger, but it does not mean that they are not then going to spread the virus. So when we take the bigger considerations, and as we will get into, as you beautifully structured this as the ripple effect, which we do need to address, we still have to keep our eyes on the social responsibility and just make sure that we clarify to our audience that if you are infected, but you are not symptomatic, it does not mean that you're not spreading the virus. Right. And this is something that has to be, you know, it really has to be underlined. Yes. So then here we are taking this self and social responsibility, going into, in some places, lockdown for others mm -hmm. of us, just uh, home quarantining. What are you seeing happening inside of those environments that's causing what I'm going to call a public health consequence? Indeed. Our healthcare agencies and the absolutely, gosh, you know, when we want to see heroes, take a look at our front responders, totally. first responders amongst the healthcare. So they are doing everything Thing they possibly can at the sacrifice of their own health Absolutely. to deal with the acute and the acute chronic symptomologies. However, at the agency level and at the messaging level, and Andrea, this is where yourself and the leaders like yourself yes. with the organizations like yourself have to step up. Because what am I seeing? As per what you've hinted to, here's what's happening. Very quickly, let me paint, and this is not to be sensationalistic or hysteric about this, but this is a pure reality. With the concepts and just the vagarities of self-isolation, quarantining, the anxieties of people, there's no two ways about it. A much larger percent of our population, our societies, are indoors and indoors for prolonged periods more than they've been probably in this generation. No two ways about it, okay? This is likely to continue for the next several weeks. Whether it's warranted or not, I'm going to leave that aside. But what yes. I'm saying is, societally, for the first time in this generation or for the last couple of generations, people are indoors, intentionally, you know, self-imposed or not, more than they've ever been before. Now, here's what's happening. When you are indoors, you're getting much less sunlight exposure. It's just a natural fact. You are exercising less. Your mobility and your activity is way down first. 
Next, the individuals that have to be in this position, rightfully, wrongfully, they are also stocking up the type of foods they're buying. Again, this is just plain factual information. They're buying more non-perishable foods. So these tend to be canned foods. They tend to be higher in salt. They tend to be higher carb-based foods, coupled with the reduced activity of the individuals indoors. So what are we doing here? We are creating in huge swaths of our societies, and not just for a couple of days, but what looks to be and what could be running on for weeks. We're creating a scenario where large percentages of our populations are consuming way too much sugar, consuming way too much salt, having way too little sun exposure, and with way too little activity. What does this spell? This spells an uptake in the frequency of hypertension, in the manifestation of insulin resistance type 2 diabetes for the individuals that were latently at risk for these things to begin with, as well as for the broader population, simply because this is not what they're accustomed to eating. This spells massive parts of our population with lower than desirable vitamin D levels. Okay, now pause. What happens to be the very first two comorbidities of the SARS-CoV-2 infection? Hypertension and And type 2 diabetes, insulin insulin resistance. So we've got to measure in our health agencies and our educative institutes like yourself, we've got to get out there. Notice this is not about the self-isolation or not, but it's to be aware of if you are in this position, what you need to do and whether you're in that position appropriately, let's just assume that you do have to be for whatever reason, whether it be because you were exposed that you are caregivers, you are the loved ones of people who are in high risk categories. Let's just assume for the right reasons, you have to be self-isolated. You have to be mindful that when you do so, the effects on your health, the longitudinal effects on your health, you also must bear this in mind. And Andrew, you know, again, it starts from being more mindful of the choices we're making of the canned foods that we're stopping, stocking up on. Actionable things, you know, things that you go, do right. this, don't do this. Yes. Choose this, don't choose this. Absolutely. Number one. A couple of quick points here. Andrew, you know, this is where, you know, I call out to our audience, those who have sway through social media, little things like helping people, you know, what might be some home, simple exercise, mobility drills that we can do. Not going to a gym does not equal not exercising. Okay. And so these are things that unfortunately our agencies are not addressing and that they will have, as you so poignantly pointed out, these will have greater ripple effects than just the acuteness of the actual infection. Yeah, I want to bring us back to the matrix. And everything you're talking about is so important. And when we think about this, pause and think about these words, public health consequence. There are consequences beyond what we're experiencing. So if we look at the matrix, this whole scenario that we're in is going to be a trigger. And you, Dr. Mansour, are going to talk about some of those triggers that happen more deeply in our bodies as well. So this is a trigger on a number of levels for other instances that will happen in our bodies. This will be remembered as a particular trigger, and we'll be adding it to people's matrices in six months, six years, six 
60 years from now. There are mediators that we have control over or no control over. If we head over to the right side of the matrix, think about the things that are being impacted that we know contribute to good health and that disrupt good health. Sleep and relaxation, disrupted. Exercise and movement, disrupted. Nutrition and hydration, as you beautifully put, disrupted. Stress and resilience in particular, disrupted. Relationships and networks, disrupted. These are the core basics of our health. And all those things that you talked about already, Dr. Mansoor, help us understand how we detoxify things. We're going, we're actually becoming more toxic. We're eating those canned foods. We're eating those processed foods. We're becoming more inflamed. We're going to see all sorts of impacts on our mind, on our spirit, on our emotions. And it goes deeper, doesn't it? These things impact our prevalence for the risk of the virus for other disease states, but also for our genes, right? 100%. You gave me goosebumps there, Andrea. I could not have summarized and highlighted the importance. And you just, wow, exactly why the agencies like the educational institutes that you lead must become forerunners here. There are those, absolutely, we have to deal with the acuteness of the infection, but there must be voices that remind individuals as to the ripple effect that you have just so beautifully summarized. If you'd allow me to dive deep in two areas, exactly per what you've just delineated. First and foremost, we all know that viruses do not multiply in and of themselves. They need to hijack a host cell, in this case, human cells, in this case, particularly the luminal cells that line the lower respiratory tract and even cardiovascular cells, particularly because of the receptor, the ACE2 receptor, which is an X-linked gene. I really also want to use this as a call out. This is not to be confused with the primary ACE gene, the angiotensin converting enzyme gene, which is on chromosome 17. A lot of medical professionals are making this mistake. Mm. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is not entering the cell via the ACE gene on chromosome 17, which is typically the gene associated. That enzymatic pathway is what we treat when we treat hypertension with ACE inhibitors and the like of it. The virus is entering the human cell through a homologue of the ACE gene, Mm. which is the ACE2 gene, which is on chromosome X. So there's going to be some sex dysmorphism here. As you know, sex differentiation, men have one X chromosome, women have two. Let's not go there any further. We can do that if there's time later on. My point is this, when an enzyme goes into a host cell, literally the very context of a viral infection is that the virus is going to usurp. It is going to hijack the mechanism and the micronutrients of that cell for its own purposes of self-replication. At no time is it better, as an example, to understand proper nutrition, proper holistic cell function, and micronutrition. So for example, one of the first micronutrition micronutrients that is used up during a viral infection, such as SARS, such as the SARS-CoV-2, is selenium. Mm. Now selenium is an integral part of our selenoproteins, which by the way, are the very, such as the glutathione peroxidase system. That's a selenoprotein. Guess what? These proteins enzymes, like the glutathione peroxidases, are the very enzymes and cellular processes we need to combat antioxidation, anti-inflammation, and detoxification, which are the very processes we need to combat a viral infection. So this is why we call this a viral vortex Mm. or a viral loop. Why? The virus goes into the cell. It usurps the ingredients of the cell to multiply. And in so doing, it is also weakening 
the processes of the cell that would have otherwise combated the virus. Wow. So, so Andrew, to your point, when you look over, as you said, in your matrix, ensuring that we understand as nutritionists, as healthcare providers, what do we do to stop that viral loop, to stop that vortex, is going to be longitudinally as important or sometimes more important than the acute emphasis, which has to be there, mind you, that we're focusing on right now. And that's just a tiny peak, right. Andrea, yes. as to what's going on. Just a tiny peak. Now let's change gears here a little. Correctly, epidemiologically, societally, we have said that there are these at-risk individuals and they do tend to be a little bit on the older age spectrum and they do tend to be on the spectrum that it's more adult onset things like hypertension and type 2 diabetes and the like of it. So in other words, you have actually had people to some degree correctly pointing out that it's a mercy that this virus is not affecting our children and the younger, the youth and the population. Fair enough. But hold on. These very children are now not in schools. They're home. Right. They are in a home environment where they're seeing mom and dad uh, or parents stressed. That stress environment, absolutely individually, there are genetic predisposers such as the ADRA2B gene and the noradrenergic pathway. Those are the very pathways that predispose children and individuals for anxiety. We're going to be seeing here both in the at-risk adult population or elder population as well as this population that no one is talking about, our children, we're going to be seeing increased levels of anxiety, both because of the societal nature of this, the doom and gloom and the news and watching of their elders be stressed out, right. as well as core, predictable, underlining genomic motifs, underlining mm. genomic drivers. And until and unless we embrace this and we talk about this, again, we're going to be seeing near post-traumatic stress manifestations in the coming months here. No two ways about it. Yeah. So now you've given me chills. I think this has such a ripple effect as we've been talking about. And it's so important that we bring our attention to it here and now because we as practitioners, as coaches, as clinicians, as whatever type of practitioner you are, we have the ability to influence these long-term outcomes. And it is really my call to action to everybody here listening to take this beyond the walls of your home and start to speak to your community about what they can be doing to mitigate these things that we're experiencing, the stressors, the bad nutrition, to get moving. Like you said, just because we can't go to the gym doesn't mean we can't move. There's tons of online resources available right now. We have to be connecting. We have to be talking. And these things make a difference. I've heard you speak, Dr. Mansoor, about the stress that's in the family and how we can be protecting our children. Do you have yes. small children? I don't know if you do. Well, they're no longer small. My, my my princess is 18 and then two <laughs> boys, 21 and 24. In fact, my 24-year-old turned 24 today. Yay. Happy birthday, Papa <laughs> and son. Um, yeah, my son's 19. So we're in the same boat yeah. and it's different in talking to them. But yes. in talking to children and kind of yes. mitigating the stress that we're passing on to them, that is going to live in their bodies, as you're saying. Yes. It is yes. having a genetic and epigenetic impact on them. How are you talking to 
clinicians about speaking to their young ones? You know, what I've said is a few guiding principles. And it, by the way, it applies not just to the young ones, but it applies to parents and the caregivers to set an example for this. Is it important that we are aware of the news that impacts our societies and impacts our lives directly, such as is such and such place open? Is there a curfew? Yes, we have to be aware of these things. But you know what, Andrea? I think we could all practice a little bit of restraint when it comes to the constant access and the constant feed of newsreels. If we're in a home and the television is turned on to every channel that you can think of and can't think of, repeating the same thing over and over and over, not to mention our personal devices, young children in our homes hearing, and they may not have either the contextual maturity level to filter this, and they're constantly being inundated with this media and the news. As parents, we're doing them a huge disservice, right? So if they're at home, such that their school has been closed, try to create an environment in the home that is as healthy as possible. Activities within the home, uh, movement activities. Let's, you know, even if it's meager resources, even if it's meager resources, how might we use those resources for the best meal plan for the day? How might we use familial events of some activities? Drop to the ground and do some burpees. Let's do something together. So to answer the point, we have to be cognizant that in our youth population, our children population, they are being affected by this change. When last have we experienced this, Andrea? Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's our elders who lived through possibly World War II. God forbid those individuals who lived through things like the Holocaust and yeah. so on and so forth. Most of our society, at least here in North America, in other parts of the world, people do live through these traumas. True. But here in North America, our children, our families, we've not experienced this before. We've got to watch out for our children. We've got to present this in a manner that they understand that there is safety still, that there is love still, that there is connectivity still. And part of doing this is to really take a fast, to take a break from the constant nauseating media. Yeah, so well said. I have one final point. I'm inspired to get on my soapbox here, and I'm going to ask you to respond to that, and then we'll wrap this up, Dr. Mansour. I know you're very busy, but one of the ways I've been thinking about this is as a three-step process. Number one, we do have to take care of ourselves. All the ways that you and I are talking about today, looking at the matrix, thinking about the right side of the matrix, making sure that you're doing what I'm calling sitting in your circle of influence. Remember that we have little control right now, but we have a lot of concern, but where we make the most impact is sitting in our circle of influence. So that's step one. Step two is addressing the immediacy of the situation in any way we can, doing all the things to take care of our family, to make sure we do have the best food possible, that we are moving and bringing that forward out into the situation that we know today. But step Step three is recognizing what the situation today is going to do in the future. And that is our final call to action here that we're talking about. It's recognizing that there will be a ripple effect. Wait a minute, we are in a triggering event. We're in it and that we can do something to mitigate the impact of that trigger. So that's a huge call to action for me to share with everybody. I would love to get your response to that, Dr. Mansour. My response is 
you've literally covered everything. That, 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 is, that is such a concise, operationable, actionable way of thinking of this. The three layers. One of the biggest things that bring us to inaction is a sense of overbearingness, where we just can't think ourselves out of a paper bag. Right. The best way of being able to break that vicious cycle is getting a sense of directionality. What is the first baby step? Then the next do what you do first. And what you've just done there in those three layers, determine your circle of influence. And that, that varies from person to person. Absolutely. And by the way, at the epicenter, the bullseye of that circle of influence is yourself. And that's not in a selfish manner. It's that you cannot help others if you are not the healthiest version of yourself. Or you can't help others as well as you can if you're not the healthiest version of yourself. So by drafting the wonderful healthcare providers, the nutritionists and other ancillary healthcare providers that fall under your influence, Andrea, reinforcing this to your network, reinforcing the way you've put it in the context of this outbreak so that we can see all of the different layers. We see the immediacy of what needs to be done and the action items from a nutrition perspective, palliative perspective, preventative perspective, acute perspective, if you happen to be infected, but also prepare yourself, prepare your bodies for the aftermath and recognize that there are segments of the population that are not being addressed, such as our children, that even if they are not the greatest at risk for the acute infection, they may very well be the greatest at risk for the psychological impact, for the poor dietary health impact. When you do something for 40 days, it starts to become habit forming. And there are different people that talk about this. Well, we could be looking at something here that for, yes, 40 days or more, we are embedded in a way of lifestyle that is not the best way of lifestyle. We better hope that that does not become habit forming. So for all of the reasons and the beautiful way that you've put this, Andrea, use this challenge as something to learn from and that we're better when we come yes. out at the end of this than when we went into it. Absolutely. So brilliantly said. I'm always wowed by the time I spend with you, Dr. Mansoor. Thank you for all you do. An honor and a privilege, Andrea. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and sound production by Rowan Bradley, with additional support from Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode ready for you, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll be sure to drop into your inbox with a short reminder that a new episode is ready for you. You also have an open invitation to email us. I'd love to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what you'd like to see mapped on the 15 minute matrix. You can email us anytime at ask at 15 minute matrix.com. Now go sit in your circle of influence.